Hi, guys. You know, I feel like we just had an episode I didn't really want to talk about, and here we are, addressing an episode about the perfect mate. As always, please be civil. I don't want to address the core issue yet. Let's kind of push that off for later. Can we do that? Just for me. Thanks. What I want to talk about is actually, this is relatively early in Famke Johnson's career overall. And what's really strange is she's not actually a bad actress. I know that sounds like an odd thing to comment on. But within Hollywood, some of the initial reasons she got attention was not because of her acting talent. Now, that's a damn shame, because as I said, she's a good actress. She isn't usually allowed to stretch that much, although that's actually probably one of the best elements of this episode. She has surprisingly good chemistry with Patrick Stewart, and she has to play three roles in this episode. I kind of wish she had to play more than that, but whatever. And she does each of them pretty well. Now, one of those is a fairly basic role, but she does the other two excellently, in my opinion. And there's a lot of little details, mostly what she does with her face. Maybe that's down to Cliff Bowl, maybe that's down to the actress herself, but overall, her performance is actually probably the best part of this episode. And boy, does it need it. Even ignoring the obvious controversial eyebrow-raising problem of this episode, this one's kind of bland. It has all of the problems of a romance of the week with nothing that really exists to help buoy it up past that other than her performance. So I find myself just sitting here going, okay. Now, the other problem is it raises several issues and doesn't actually address them in any substantial matter. Now, obviously, I don't want an episode to preach at me. I don't want an episode to tell me what to think. But I also want an episode to acknowledge and, and comprehend, to, to dig into something. Um, this has happened several times, even before now in TNG. And it will certainly happen many times in the future in the rest of Star Trek. But I digress. So, the Ferengi... No, one of the first things that happens is he says, we must make sure that the cargo bay is off-limits to all but critical personnel. Got it. Then they rescue the Ferengi. Two points about this. First of all, the Ferengi nearly die. Like, they come within seconds of dying in their attempts to get on board. That's... Well, I've talked about the Ferengi as we've been going through TNG and DS9. And this is officially, we are formally and officially in the realm of the Ferengi are a joke. You'll notice they're not even really an antagonist. An enemy force in this episode. Even though they directly cause both of the conflicts of the episode, they do so not by malice or by cleverness or by being an, an opponent for the team. Instead, they come across as they, they, be, they become the problem because of their own bungling. Both times, actually. The guy was just scanning the stasis pad before, oh my god, oh, whoa, 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 which sets the emotions of the, or sets the the events of the episode into motion. And then later, they were just randomly struggling with the guy before they accidentally knocked him out. No malice there, no villainousness, just whoops. Like, you can almost hear the cartoony sound effect. This is the Ferengi, ladies and gentlemen. Until we get to DS9, 
that's going to be the Ferengi. Anyways. But I do want to bring up something. Only critical personnel near the cargo bay. And then one of the Ferengi walks in without issue. So this is, there's only two possibilities here. Either Picard and the crew of the Enterprise are stupid in the fact that they were not able to follow through on an order when it was significant, when they had time to do so, or they are stupid because they actually were incapable of performing proper security. Point in fact, actually, if you think about it, the security of the Enterprise-D is actually pretty lackluster, so I'm kind of guessing it's the latter. Also, a very minor plot point. They kept talking about the Creosians in this one. And I was like, that sounds familiar. So I decided to look it up. Sure enough, obviously there's the episode on Enterprise, which was the first one that came to mind. But apparently these are the people from back in the Mind's Eye, you know, the extremely horrifying episode, who were under Klingon rule. I'm just amused that the Klingons are totally cool with people they are in control of having a century of warfare. I guess they're just kind of hands off policy. Yeah, you can go fight those people. We, we don't care. Whatever. Yeah, it's just a Tuesday. <laughs> Anyways. So then Fomke Johnson shows up, immediately gravitates to Picard. And again, lots of little details in her performance. I know this is going to sound like a strange thing, but I recommend if you're watching these with me, you pay attention to her face. A lot of the little nuances she shows is in how she presents her face and how she looks and how she changes how her, her facial stance. Like, I'm kind of doing it here. She changes how she positions her face and head in general relative to the rest of her body, which gets across a completely different tone at different points. And she knows how to utilize her eyebrows, her mouth, you know, all that stuff in order to get across a, a variety of emotions. It's good stuff. It is legitimately good stuff. Now, this is when the episode kind of starts to stumble over itself more than it already has. First of all, Picard is, well, understandably pissed. They don't use the word slave, but... Yeah, they're, there's, they're pretty anti-slavery in the Federation. Go figure. And thus, they make the statement that people are not property. And then he says, she's not property, she's a gift. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not much of a defense. Then, he, they throw out the casual line that male metamorphs are much more common. I have since found out that that line was specifically tossed in to try and help dissuade some of the perceived outrage that would happen as a consequence of this episode. In fact, even back in the day, there were a lot of people who were going to be rather upset about, you know, and I quote, and this is a direct quote from Michael Pill here, upset about the adolescent male fantasy episode. Now, Pillar stood by this episode. He, he defended it, and he was actually one of the major writers. By the way, fun fact, quite a few people ended up writing this episode because they couldn't decide, basically. They just kept workshopping it and workshopping it and workshopping it. And so it kept passing from writer to writer. Pillar pushed for it. His stated reasons for it, and I want to read this out loud here. I think there's room for all kinds of shows, and essentially if you come up with a character and throw her into a situation, you see how it works. And I think the challenge of this show, here we go, is if Picard is confronted with this perfect mate, could he resist her? The fun is seeing him resist, and he's doing all these things to try and resist, and does he resist? You have to decide. The thing is complicated by the fact that he knows she does it just for him, and the idea is how do I deal with this when there's something about her that I'm attracted to? And thus, that is, according to him, his core premise here. 
Which I suppose means we need to discuss the core problem with this episode. But before we get there, I want to mention three other things, just real quick. Rapid fire here. First of all, damn it, Riker. Keep it in your pants. <laughs> come on. I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, Fomke Johnson, come on. But come on, dude. Second of all, Picard and Crusher have an interesting little argument over breakfast. And what I like most about the argument is that they both agree but they disagree on what they're going to do about it. Crusher is, of course, arguing from pure morality, from what I like to call, and I have referred to many times, as the microscopic perspective, the perspective of the individual. She sees a person, the end. Picard agrees with her completely and is just as bothered by all the things. However, he is basically like, I'm just going to let this be as is. Why? Because he is arguing from the macroscopic perspective, the perspective of borders and treaties and national territory and wars that's the perspective he's taking and that makes perfect sense she's a doctor he's a captain it's just a nice little scene and as usual it's good stuff in fact the two actually have another wonderful scene later in this episode which sadly i don't actually have much to say about in specific other than that it's it's a treat as usual the two manage to to, to bounce off each other perfectly there's even this great moment where picard's like can I take off the uniform for a second? And she says, John Luke. But she says it in a very specific way, in a, I know what you're talking about, I'm just pretending to be scandalized by it kind of way. It's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Anyways, third point, Thomke Johnson herself. I don't know if you're aware of this, but she actually auditioned to be Judzia Dax over on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I wonder what that would have been like. Oh, don't mistake me, I actually like Terry Farrell quite a bit, and as I've talked about in the DS9 stuff, she definitely grew as an actress as the show got on, and you know, learned her trade better, basically. Because she wasn't all that great early on, but she definitely was later. And she's grown on me more than I thought she would. But I bring that up, because you might be thinking, these, these people look a lot like Trill, and the specific reason why, if you're remembering, is because of the whole making-it-up-as-we-go nature of the Trill in Deep Space Nine, and the whole reason they did the spots was because Famke Johnson auditioned for Dax, and they were thinking, oh god, because remember, they originally had the different makeup. In fact, there's pictures of Terry Farrell in the original Trill makeup, which conforms to uh, The Host, I think is the name of the episode. And no, they were like, no, you can't do that, we need to do another makeup. So they kind of had to make up with another makeup on the fly, and then they remembered Famke Johnson, who was also auditioning for the role, who had this spots makeup, and they're like, we'll just do that. It's weird how stuff like this lines up sometimes. All right, let's go ahead and get to the core problem. So we have an episode about a woman who can empathically detect what men want and sets off pheromones like crazy, which turns them on in addition to being desirable from a mental perspective. So the idea here is that this woman is supposed to be both mentally and physically desirous. Then you add on top of that the fact that she enjoys, by her own statement, being enjoyed to, 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 to give to others. We also find out as the episode goes along that this woman has basically never been alone and doesn't even know how to properly process who she is when she's alone. It is entirely reasonable to say that there is no such thing as her when she's alone. Now, that being stated... There's some little niggles in that, and I want to discuss that later, but this is the core problem. The core problem is choice, in my opinion. 
And I, I, I say in my opinion, I've argued this point many times with many people over many years, and I know a few other Star Trek you know, YouTubers have also brought up this exact same point. Because if a human being who is not being coerced, has not been programmed, has not been anything, walks up and says, I want to be the, the perfect mate to this other person, and they want that, and they enjoy that, then that's okay. At least in my opinion. Because that's their choice. The problem is, how much of this is her choice? How much of a self-identity does she have? How much capacity does she have to make her choice? One of the reasons children usually aren't allowed to make choices in certain elements is because they're not they're determined to not be cognizant enough, they're not developed enough to understand the choices they're making. And it's also why ten people tend to look... So, so that means someone who doesn't have enough experience isn't usually considered to be able to make a choice in all circumstances. Same thing with someone who is being coerced. Same thing with someone who has been raised in a certain way. You know, there are all sorts of weird and unfortunate gray areas here, gray leading in black, about people who are making a choice, but arguably are not doing so of their own volition. Or perhaps they're not doing making an informed choice. And that is the core issue here. Is she making an informed decision to be the perfect mate? Or is this something that is being forced upon her thanks to upbringing or cultural responsibilities or actual programming or whatever? And I don't know the answer to that question. And I think that, I think that question needs to be addressed. And I am, as always, curious of your guys' thoughts. As always, all I ask is you be civil. But I'm very curious what you think about that. Now, she mentions multiple times that she is investedly interested in Picard himself. I don't blame her. I mean, think about Picard as a character for a second. <laughs> that is a very desirable man. I'm sorry. Um, but the problem is he... I'm sorry, I have to diverge for a second. I love the line he has. I'm really quite dull. I fall asleep every night with a book in my hands. She mentions that the reason she does this to him is because some part of him wants her to. That implies that this is not her choice. Later on in the episode, however, she admits that she thinks to herself she likes who she is when she's with him, which implies that it might actually be a choice. It is also worth noting that there are several very small inferences in the script that kind of lean you to thinking that she is basically being introduced to the concept of self-determination, to put it as simply as I can, which is a very Star Trek thing, right? Like, that's an extremely Star Trek thing, that the Federation personnel teach freedom of will to someone who doesn't understand the concept. Cough, cough, Iborg. <laughs> now, I bring that up. God, that's just a few episodes from now, isn't it? I bring that up because that helps to inform everything else in the episode and how let's put this as bluntly as we can, icky this whole thing is. Now, I can only give you my opinion, because I don't know for total certainty. But based on everything I know, including the original ending, I think that this was not her choice. I think she was programmed uh, as a consequence of upbringing and the very biological nature of what she is as a metamorph. And ergo, she didn't actually choose anything up until her final choice. 
the catch is her final choice isn't in the episode. It was cut from the script. So here's the thing. They actually came up with four separate endings for this, and I know a few of them. But the one that really matters is the original ending, and this is a direct quote from Michael Pillar. She interrupts them and tells both of them during the marriage ceremony that she isn't staying for either one of them. She says through Picard's influence, she has been enlightened and is going off in search of adventure, leaving both men standing there. I was overruled. I think that those who overruled me would say that her leaving was not justified by anything in the script, but I would argue with that. That's direct quote by Mr. Pillar. I'm with him. Ignoring the fact that it's a little, it is a little cliche and it's a little typical Star Trek. But it also makes perfect sense in this circumstance. See, one of the things Picard has been really firm on since the very first moment he saw her was that she, as an individual person, should have her right to choose defended. And he does that repeatedly and consistently. In fact, he was completely hands-off because of political concerns, because of the macroscopic view, right up until Crusher points out that she is being restricted against her will. That was unacceptable. The idea is there that Picard is sufficiently interested in her ability to choose that as an empath, she just kind of turns in that direction. That she is, to quote myself from earlier, introduced to the concept of self-determination. And so she chooses, and she leaves. That makes perfect sense to me. It's a still a little bit horrible because it means she didn't choose up until that moment, but it does mean she chose in the end. Unfortunately, with the ending we did get, which is her deciding to go forward because of duty and responsibility, it is entirely possible that that is her not choosing. That she is still the slave, just like she was to begin with. And that she is only this way because she bonded with Picard, and as a consequence she now has that whole sense of responsibility, duty, etc. thing going for her. Yay. I mentioned she, she plays three roles. Role number one is what I like to call the seductress, which is exactly what it sounds like. She portrays that around basically everyone except for Data and Picard. Role number two is the way she portrays herself when she is around Picard. You know, that is the Picard self. It's the one she does the most throughout the course of the episode. Very rarely she portrays herself when she is alone, which is... It's hard to explain it. There are noticeable moments where she kind of... You can almost see the character trying to fall back on her usual empathic abilities, but she can't, and so she's left just being herself. And there's this moment of almost just confusion of, I, I don't know how to process this broccoli, I don't know how to deal with this. Uh, and then she reverts back to the empath. And it's just little holes here and there. I was hoping we'd see more of that, especially since they did the correct thing of pairing her up with Data. It would thus be very easy to have her betray, portray, excuse me, herself, as in the absence of others, because she is simply around Data, who cannot fulfill that void for her. Unfortunately, she spends like a grand total of two minutes around Data. It's actually very, very minute. Anyways. So then, of course, the, the Ferengi bungle things again, and Picard is forced to be with her because, yay, slapstick. And there's the wonderful Picard and Crusher scene, and then she chooses, she chooses or doesn't choose, depending on how you define like I said. And then she's married off to some bore, and Picard has to just kind of deal with it at the end. This was not a great episode. 
And the funny thing is, if you were to somehow eject all of the icky stuff from it, it still wouldn't be a great episode. This is something I make a key point of, because I want to separate my, the distinction of my dislike of the episode and my dislike of the issue. It's one of the reasons I pointed that out over on Code of Honor all the way back when that was a lamentation, was because I was bothered by several parts of the episode, and, completely ignoring all of that, it was a bad episode. I, I sometimes feel I never explained that properly in that actual episode. I don't know how much else to add here. It's a shame that this is all we got, especially since Season 5 in general is actually a pretty good season with some good episodes. Next up, we have an episode... I don't know what I'm going to think about that one. I guess we'll get there when we get there. And I hope to see you there next time.